can we design intellectual antibodies? How does misinformation spread like a virus? Why do our brains cling to biases? I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab. It's a podcast where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Dr. Seema Yasmin. She is a rock star. She is an Emmy award-winning journalist, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, a medical doctor and a Stanford and UCLA professor, as well as a CEO coach working with Corporate Edge. Seema has served as a disease detective in the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC, a science reporter for the Dallas Morning News, and a medical analyst for CNN. She's the author of five books, and her reporting has appeared in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Wired, Scientific American, BBC, NBC, and other news networks. Her unique combination of expertise as a duly trained physician and medical journalist has been called upon by the Vatican, the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues, and the White House. She's the director of the Stanford Health Communication Initiative, a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford University, a visiting professor of crisis communication at UCLA's Anderson School of Medicine. She trained in journalism at the University of Toronto and in medicine at the University of Cambridge. Her newest book, What the Fact, is a navigation guide for teens and adults on how to survive the murky worlds of misinformation and disinformation and become savvy consumers of information. Seema Yasmin, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to start off with your upcoming book. It drops September 20th. Is that right? That's right. September 20th. It's called What the Fact? Finding the Truth in All the Noise. What is the book about? Why did you write it? And what was it like conducting the research for the book? Yeah, the book is a very fun entertaining and interesting guide to navigating the murky world of misinformation and disinformation. So we are surrounded, and I think we all know this, like lies go viral all the time. We're surrounded by so much false information that you kind of just get overwhelmed with it. And it can be a little tricky sometimes to sort between facts and fiction. Or you might read this book because you're good at spotting that stuff, but You want to know the latest evidence on how to effectively debunk myths, maybe myths that your family Mm. or friends fall for, and you want evidence-based advice, really. This book is a guide on how to disagree effectively, so how to have a constructive disagreement as opposed to conflict about, you believe this, that's not Mm. true, or you don't don't want to get vaccinated, you don't want to get vaccinated. And all of that stuff can just blow up. So this book is about the science of our brain, the science of stories, how to debunk effectively and how to make sure that you yourself do not fall for the lies that are out there. I love the description you have of the book. You said it's a way for us to BS proof our brain. I love that. Yeah, because it is possible. And I, many of us will be like, oh, no, I'm already really good at that. I can spot a lie a mile away. I promise you, we are all susceptible. And, you know, I've been studying misinformation and disinformation for about a decade now. Before it was like trendy, like during the pandemic, you were, you were studying well, it before the pandemic. <laughs> I would like to say it was trendy back then too. But yes, now everyone, everyone is talking. And I'll tell you a funny story about that too. But yeah, now everyone is talking about it. But 
when colleagues of mine from around the world have meetings sometimes, we're talking about misinformation and disinformation. One of my peers, Nat Jenis, she will begin the meeting by saying to everyone, so let's share something that was not factual that we fell for recently. And I think it's it's funny because it's like, it's like making fun of ourselves, like, oh my gosh, we should know better. But it's such a good and humbling reminder that even if it was for 10 seconds, even if it was for a day, even whatever, we all sometimes end up believing in stuff that isn't evidence-based and mm. that's okay. It's part of being human, but let's be really careful about it. Yeah. Even scientists and physicians, we fall for these biases and are our brains hardwired that way? Why, why do our brains grab onto these biases? Because our beliefs are formed not just based on facts and not just based on logic and rationale like we would like to think. Our beliefs are based on belonging. And even if you think, you, I'm an introvert, I like being alone, the thing is, as humans, we evolve to be very interactionist, very collective, community-based animals. Mm. And our very survival depended on us getting along with each other, maybe not getting on with some other groups, but our group needed to be tight-knit. Now, apply that to the modern era and you start to understand, and I really dug into the research of this because, you know, I'm I'm a a public health doctor and I'm an epidemiologist and a journalist, but I'm not an evolutionary biologist. Mm. But learning from them really helped give me a sense of Oh, I see why humans are so funky. I see why we will not get the flu shot, but demand an Ebola shot, even if we live in the middle of Texas. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. we're not always so rational and logical. And it was talking to the evolutionary biologists that made me realize okay, our brains are not hardwired to assess and dissect millions of data points. Our brains are very susceptible to stories, Mm. and those stories are what help us find that sense of belonging and our identity. And taking it back to that disagreement thing, this is why a conflict with someone where you're like, hold on, bro, Mm. you just said you don't want to get vaccinated against, let's just say COVID, Uh because this, this, and this here are facts that prove you are wrong. That conversation in of itself, if you think about it, should be a very calm, like, let me look at the numbers. Let me look at the data. The reason those kinds of conversations, whether it's about COVID vaccines, whether it's about race, whether it's about, you know, I don't know, the science of chemtrails in the air, whatever it is, they blow up and they get so heated and hurtful because our beliefs are really about our identity. Mm. And it's deep. And, you know, I've been tracking these anti-science and anti-vaccine messages for, like I said, like over a decade. And you'll always see that falsehoods that are like, oh, vaccines are toxic, vaccines cause autism. All of that is not true. Mm. But all along and increasingly, you'll see this messaging that says, vaccines are anti-American. Vaccines are anti-freedom. They go against the American way of life. So our beliefs, you might think it's about just a vaccine, just the thing that's in this vial. Actually, our beliefs are so much bigger than that. They're ingrained, they're to do with our identity and our sense of belonging. And we can't have these conversations unless we kind of get into that messy gray zone as well. So we're in this pandemic of misinformation. And what are some 
ways that you vaccinate against the misinformation? Yeah, we're, you know, we're in a pandemic and we're in a misinfodemic too, which is the epidemic of misinformation. And I think there is this really exciting field that I want people to know about, which is some people call it cognitive immunology or this idea that your brain has its own quote unquote immune system, that in the same way you can get a flu shot and develop antibodies to this virus, you can vaccinate, quote unquote, vaccinate your brain and develop intellectual antibodies. And the reason I'm so excited to share this like burgeoning field, especially with young readers, but with adult readers too, is I think otherwise it's just like a very negative conversation that happens about mm-hmm. quote unquote fake news. And because we see the virality of the falsehoods, it can just feel like, ugh, what is even the point? This is just one of those big societal problems like racism. We'll never be able to end it. And actually, all of those problems can be fixed. It's hard. It takes evidence. It takes a collective approach. But that's why I wrote this book to be like, hey, I want to wave this in your face to be like this stuff in here that can make you the antidote to misinformation and disinformation and viral lies. Mm. So I wanted to inject that hope back into the conversation. I'm curious to know what the research was like for this book. Did you have to take a deep dive into social media and engage with people spreading misinformation? I did. I fell down so many disturbing (laughs) rabbit holes. And I'll tell you, like... Tell us about some of them. I'm so curious about them. Oh, man. They're (laughs) in the book. But one of them, like, I was really just trying to understand the social media algorithms, right? We hear this word algorithm. It's almost like a dirty word now because we learn of, like, how it exploits our attention span and exploits our brain and exploits our susceptibility to stories. I really wanted to understand these algorithms. So... I was trying to see, like, why is it that the social media algorithms push us towards extremism, extreme Mm. things in general? And so the example I give in, in the book, in the social media chapter, is like, you know, if there's an influencer out there who eats, like, oatmeal and egg whites for breakfast, it's not that interesting. It's kind of like, yeah, that's what I eat too. (laughs) But if there's an influencer or a wannabe influencer who's blogging about eating 30 bananas in a day and nothing else, okay, the algorithms love it because they see now that they can push this, they can grab attention, it's controversial, it's an extreme diet, an extreme point of view, and the algorithm rewards the content creator for that by getting loads of eyeballs on it. And the algorithm then also is kind of like rewarding the social media platform because we are scrolling, we are hitting like, we are hitting repost, Mm. we're hitting save on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, you know, wherever you want to look at it. And that's, you know, hmm, I mean, it's an extreme diet. So yes, you can argue that it's extremely disturbing, but the really disturbing rabbit hole that I fell down and it just made me actually delete some of my social media apps for a while mm. was around white supremacy and around how is it that 12-year-olds are becoming radicalized in their bedrooms and how is it that the FBI or the British police or the German police is 
ending up having to raid the bedrooms of 12 and 13-year-olds and finding notebooks in these 12 and 13-year-olds' bedrooms that list the synagogues and the mosques that they want to blow up. Oh, my gosh. That Um, is disturbing. It's horrific. And they're hidden behind social media. So sometimes the authorities, when they find these people, they'll be called the chief online. For example, you're expecting a fully grown adult man and you find it's a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old who can't even spell fascist correctly, but is masterminding and engineering these sometimes cross-country networks of white supremacists. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is extremely disturbing, but white supremacy is not new. So like, what is it that, what social media got to do? Is this just another thing where we're like, oh, the internet, like just blaming the internet for everything. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, no, the social media has a really powerful role to play in radicalizing people. Mm-hmm. And so like one of the rabbit holes I fell down was, was also this idea that, you know, like if you were a kid or even now as an adult, someone tells you about white supremacists that are organizing a protest and how they are connecting ideas about veganism and the purity of diet with the purity of the white race, right? Say someone's telling you, hey, did you know that there are these people who are like, yeah, Hitler was a vegetarian and we should like purify our bodies and keep whiteness alive. They might say it to you with exactly that same tone that I just used, which is like, oh my God, can you believe this, right? Like, what the heck? This is crazy. If you're 12 and the first time, one of the earliest times you're presented with that idea mm-hmm. is on social media and it's absent the tone and actually the way that you're being exposed to that idea is in a viral video mm-hmm. with young people who look like you, sound a bit like you, and that video's got 1.5 million likes and a few tens of thousands of comments going, yeah, I love this, that starts to mainstream a very extremist view. Mm. On top of that, you have very unhelpful mechanisms built into the social media platforms, like the auto-playing of videos. So you're just watching one, and then the next thing you know, it's three hours later and you're knee deep in videos where you, and this is the rabbit hole that I kind of outlined in the book. You started off on YouTube, for example, looking for healthy eating videos because you want to clean up your diet. And a few hours later, I kid you not, it sounds so extreme, but it is so extreme. You can be watching two teenagers in Germany making a salad making a vegan lasagna. And as they are mixing this, talking about how Hitler was vegetarian and how pure blood, pure soil and a pure race are interconnected. That is so crazy and disturbing. Uh, And is your book geared towards all audiences? I, I know that it is one of the audiences is teenagers. Is that correct? That's right. But it is written for everyone because I think we all need to be having this conversation and young people are really capable of having conversations about some of these tricky things, including virality, including why we believe some of the silly things that we believe. But I really think we have been doing young people a disservice by just kind of going on and on about, oh, don't believe what you see and read. And there's so much fake news out there that I want us to have a healthier conversation that is more solutions oriented. 
Are you optimistic about the future? Do we have enough different types of vaccines to fight this misinformation that is rapidly spreading? I am optimistic. And that's kind of also my reason for writing this for young people was that you can deprogram people. We've seen it happen with people who've been indoctrinated into cults. You know, humans are not a lost cause. Sometimes we can bring people back. But I think it's so much more protective and helpful and fun if you're reaching young people before everything's become set in stone. And just to clarify for anyone thinking like, wait, what is the vaccination we're talking about like for the brain? It's this idea that you can build this immunity, this mental resilience to falling for all of the BS that's out there. And it's based on evidence. And I'll tell you a little bit about the history of this because it's so interesting. And it's not even that new, but in the 1960s, there was this social psychologist called William Maguire or Bill Maguire, mm-hmm. who was really worried about the war that the US, the wars that the US was embroiled in at the time and how information warfare, you didn't have to drop bombs on people. And even as Russia is dropping bombs on Ukraine, even now, there's information warfare and propaganda happening all the time that are so powerful, right? They do away with the need mm-hmm. for bombs, in fact, because indoctrinating people, duping people, they you make them all your soldiers. So Bill Maguire is really worried about this. And he's like, he's not a doctor, but he takes this analogy of like, hold on a second. If you can vaccinate someone against flu, then you are protecting them even before they get exposed to the virus itself. You're giving the body a heads up. You're giving the body a few months or weeks Mm. to make up these antibodies. He said, why can't we do this for the mind? And so he came up with this idea that's called inoculation theory. And people also refer to it as pre-bunking as well. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that I might say to you, and hope we should have done this, right? Is like, hey, there's this new virus out there. And say we're back in 2020 and we're having this conversation. And I'm saying to you, there's no vaccine yet, but there's a race to make a vaccine. Like there's never been a race before. It's so exciting and amazing. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm confident they're going to come up with a vaccine. But I'm going to give you a heads up. The second that vaccine is approved, you're going to see these rumors online saying that it messes with the DNA. I can just predict Mm. that because it's a new kind of vaccine. What I am doing to you then is even before you've been exposed, I'm ringing an alarm bell. So you're like, oh, okay, there could be some incoming nonsense my way. And what that does is it gives you time to develop mental counter arguments where I can say to you, Because these vaccines are likely going to contain messenger RNA, you might think, you might want to believe the lies that the vaccine can change your DNA. Let me tell you a couple things. One, messenger RNA is really, really fragile. So once you get vaccinated, it doesn't even last that long in your body. And two, there's no way it could change or interfere with your DNA. So now I've given you a heads up that that you're going to be experiencing some nonsense. And I've given you some counter arguments so that when you do hear the nonsense, you're like, Oh, but hold on. I already know. Messenger RNA is really fragile. It degrades quickly, won't stick around. And even if it did stick around, it couldn't interfere with my DNA. And these concepts of ringing the alarm bell, pre-bunking before you're exposed, and then giving you those counter arguments, kind of like giving you the intellectual antibodies, right? Like the flu Mm -hmm. vaccine does. That's the kind of vaccine we're talking about here. I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts about physicians? Should we have, what should be our role in in maybe giving some of these intellectual antibodies, what role should physicians play? 
It's so funny that you asked me that question today, because about four hours ago, I had an opinion piece published in the San Francisco Chronicle. Oh, about, cool. We'll put a link um, to that in the show I'm going to blank on the headline now, but it's something about doctors who spread disinformation. Mm. So forget being the solution. My essay is about healthcare professionals who are part of the problem. And the reason I wrote this is in late August, the California, or not just early September, I think the California Senate passed through a bill, which if it is signed by Governor Newsom on or before September 30th, would make California the first state in the country to have a law that would require taking legal action against medical professionals who spread lies about COVID, including COVID treatments and COVID vaccines. And we haven't had any recourse. And I just, you know, start the essay off with all these stories I heard during the pandemic of people whose doctors prescribed them unproven treatments for COVID. And we're like, no, this is going to save your life. And then they got sick and we're like, what's happening? And so... Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because literally the op-ed went live a few hours ago. I, of course, would like to think that the role of doctors in the misinfodemic is being those trusted individuals who share evidence-based medicine with you, who share evidence-based guidance with everybody in ways that everyone can understand, and certainly not as the people who are the quacks spreading the lies. But of course, that's an a tale as old as humanity itself. Yeah. But most doctors, I would say, are not as good storytellers or as you. You went to, you studied journalism and you worked as a journalist for the Dallas Morning News. What's your advice for physicians to stop the spread of misinformation or become better storytellers on spreading truth? I think med school does beat a lot of the creativity and humanity out of us, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm raising my hand right here, yes. (laughs) Because I think a lot of us are amazing storytellers. We just don't kind of get to flex those muscles. And I think in general, humans, especially as kids, we start off as really good storytellers. I think we we unfortunately unlearn a lot of that fun stuff as we become adults. But for anyone who is thinking, well, I don't have those particular skills, I don't think... I'd say, you know, as a, as a healthcare provider, it's not even so much about the art and science of storytelling. It's about connection mm-hmm. with your patients. It's about having empathy and compassion at the times when you want to rip your hair out. It's way more difficult than I'm making it sound, right? It's having that open heart and open mind as a patient is telling you, you're wrong. I don't care that you went to Harvard Med. I'm not getting vaccinated because A, B, C. And it's about, in that situation, being curious, asking more questions than you give answers, actually, and really finding a point of connection with your patient so that you can have an ongoing relationship where there will will at least be some hope, some chance that you'll reach some evidence-based consensus. Mm -hmm. I want to open up another tab here. You have an incredibly diverse career. So you published uh, five books. One book was on poetry that I just ordered. I can't wait to get it. You worked as a journalist at the CDC in the Epidemic Intelligence Service. And you're also a professor at Stanford and UCLA. And I'm curious to know, having such a diverse career path in medicine, 
isn't always looked favorably upon because we have a very conservative field. And what were some of the maybe roadblocks to pursuing all these different pathways in your career? And and did you open yourself to, to any criticism with that circuitous career path? The biggest roadblock is not seeing it done elsewhere. So feeling like the freak all the time, mm. <laughs> the person that's doing the thing you're not supposed to do. And bear in mind, I trained in, I went to med school in, in Cambridge in England and then trained within the National Health Service in the UK. Mm. And it's very much conveyor belt career, which, you know, medicine in the US is too. You do your four years and you do residency and fellowship and all of that good stuff. But I just felt like in the UK, we were even told like on the first day of med school, like you are student doctors now. So you're basically, you know, you're about to be doctors. This is your identity now. It's not just a vocation. No, and they I, really no, said that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the story that this one professor said was like, this doctor recently was arrested for like amassing all these speeding tickets. And what goes in the headline? That they were a doctor. And I still remember that. Oh, wow. And I wasn't like overwhelmed or daunted by it at the time. You know, you work so hard to get into med school that on day one, you're like, yeah, this is my life now. I love it. Like, this is what I want to be and do. And what the the principles I want to embody of somebody who's caring and wants to, you know, be of service to others. But then it gets stifling when you think this is what I will do for the rest of my life. Mm. And it even became stifling earlier than that when I remember like one time being in the labor suite and this woman was struggling with the most, oh my gosh, horrific delivery I've ever seen in my life. And meanwhile, there was an obstetrician where he was either a resident or a fellow. And he was like, and I was in my third or fourth year of med school. And he said to me, so what do you want to be, a doctor or a surgeon? And I was like, oh, I don't know yet. Because you have to decide at that point what you're uh, going to apply, you know, to for your internship and residency. And he was like so affronted by the idea that I had not committed in my mind to this thing that he was like kind of bullying me on the spot. Oh my God. What a stressful situation. So in England, I felt like even more so, it was like, you will be a doctor, decide which route you're going to be surgeon, you're going to be a medic, and you just decide. Then I moved to America and I become a professor at Stanford Med. And I remember I was asked to give a talk to the first year med students on their first day, which I was really excited about. And I thought, oh, I'm going to get there earlier to see the dean give his welcome talk because I want to see, I want to see what it feels like to be an American med student on day one. I won't have that experience. And you know, this is Stanford. We are in Silicon Valley. Everything is about saving the world and disrupting the narrative and all of this. And the dean at the med school says to the students, like half or something like that of our med students, they don't want to finish in four years. So if you want to take a year off to write the great American novel, if you want to take a year off to study Russian poetry, and I was like, what is he talking about? <laughs> this is amazing. So hopefully that's happening a little bit more here. And I, if I have my way, it will happen a lot more elsewhere. But for me, the biggest roadblock was when I was training in the UK and then asking a one of the uh, attendings, I guess you'd call it, we call them consultants, to sign my reference letter when I was applying to the Epidemic Intelligence Service in the US to be an officer. And that already, even though it's so aligned with medicine, felt like, no, I am disrupting the training program and I'm going to look so weird 
And then it happened again where I did get into the Epidemic Intelligence Service. I did my two years. And at the end of that, I didn't do what everyone else does, which is become part of the American public health system, go on to lead CDC or whatever that might be. I said, no, I'm now that we're wrapping up, I want to go to journalism school. And so I've always followed frustration points and I've always followed my heart in that even when it hasn't made sense or I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with a particular skill, I've understood that I need a training in that skill and kind of followed that curiosity. Mm. Well, thank you for giving some inspiration to us who have not seen that diverse pathway because your journey is a very unique one. You have another book of viral BS, medical myths, and why we fall for them. And I love how you debunked this claim of medical mistakes are the third leading cause of death in the US. I remember that was being all out in the media all the time. And I'm like, I practice in the hospital. Yeah, we make medical mistakes, but it's not the third leading cause of death for my patients. (laughs) And how did that spread so fast? Because it felt like so many people believe that. And I'm like, and we all like looked at each other. It's like, yeah, my mistakes aren't that bad. <laughs> I don't know. Right. No, that's a, I'm so glad you asked that question. It's a great question because it gives me the opportunity to kind of like use that as an example to say like, here are the things that make something that's not very accurate kind of go viral, which that did back then. So it's definitely a number of factors. One is that it comes from a seemingly credible source. But actually, when you then dissect the studies, then and you have to have some of the skills to do that, right? To dissect yeah. the studies, you're like, mm, you're kind of extrapolating data to a very large population. And that doesn't make sense how you're doing it, right? So you've already missed that kind of nuance and just good old explanation. You've generated a press release that lazy journalists, unfortunately, and I'm a journalist, but hopefully not never a lazy one, but lazy journalists have run with the press release, lazy and under-resourced journalists, I will say, right? You haven't got Mm. the time, the luxury of all the fact-checking, but... So then you end up with the the press release generating headlines and the headlines generating their own kind of contagion. You know, one outlet runs with it, another runs with it. Plus, you have this very central element to this story that you want to watch out for in all pieces of misinformation and disinformation, which is it's emotionally triggering. Mm. You hear that headline, the leading cause of death isn't heart disease, it's your doctor. And it's suddenly like, that's awful. Oh my gosh, all these people are dying because the doctors and nurses, it's like very heart-wrenching. You're like, this is awful. Someone needs to do something about this. That emotionally triggering aspect, it makes viral stuff go really, really, really viral. It's like what makes things viral. So that's part of it. And you need to watch out for the, the next time something makes you feel affronted and disgusted and enraged or like, oh, okay. Some button's been pushed. Let's just hold on a second. Like, why? It's probably a good life lesson in general to be like when someone gets on your nerves too. But certainly if you just read a tweet, a headline, you've seen a video on TikTok, that's the time to stop and do a little bit of fact checking. But it is complicated. Like I said, in this case, you'd have to do what I did really, which is dig into the original studies that led to that press release or led to those headlines. And then you start thinking, "Mm, I don't think we can apply these studies in the way that these authors are trying to do it. Yeah, You wrote a great piece in Wired Magazine about PANS, a pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome. And a couple of questions, you know, why did you choose to write a story about that? Like, I never heard of that disease before. And I thought this 
I, what I liked about that article was this tension of, is it a real diagnosis or not? And how in medicine, what is our process of creating diagnoses and what is the impact that has upon patients when we're not even have consensus on diagnosis? Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories I've ever written for Wired Magazine and just in general. And just to give a quick recap, what we are talking about is a disease, a condition that is highly contested and where some will say to you, this child became quickly, young child, previously healthy child, like the kid in the story I talk about, one minute, fine, next minute, suicidal. Next minute, trying to jump out of a moving car and you're like, what has happened to my child? The mother that I, you know, I interviewed for that Wired story said it was as if someone had come and replaced my son. Like mm. that's how it's just a horrific, right? And yeah. I'm not a parent, but I cannot imagine that anguish. Oh my gosh. And this family had to hire a Navy SEAL to sleep in the doorway of their son's young son's bedroom because he would run out the house at oh all time, gosh. right? So this is what we're talking about. What happens with these kids, parents take them to psychologists, psychologists says take them to a psychiatrist, psychiatrist says to a neurologist. They go down this hole of one provider after another who's like, we just don't, and they give like a dozen diagnoses in the end, the kid ends up on all these kinds of medicines. Then what happens, and this is a story in, that I wrote about, is this trajectory where you go from everyone being like, I don't know what's wrong with him. He has depression. Oh, he has OCD. He has psychosis. Medicine, medicine, medicine gets worse, gets worse, gets worse. In the case of the family I talked to, they end up at Stanford. Okay. So mm. where I work, and I'd never heard of this condition until I wrote this story, they end up at Stanford. What do you expect of doctors at Stanford? Very highly trained, very competitive, hard to get a job at Stanford. You must be so educated, so qualified. And then this doctor, these doctors who are compassionate, lovely, caring, highly educated, highly trained, top of their field at Stanford say to you, I can cure your son with antibiotics. He has an infection. The infection has caused his body to react in this way. The doctor gives your son the antibiotics and a week later, you're like, I have my son back. Oh my mm -hmm. gosh. Meanwhile, you tell others about this other doctors and the other doctors say to you, those doctors at Stanford are quacks. There is no such disease. It's called PANS or PANDAS. Uh -huh. You can read up more about the acronyms, but just to put it in a nutshell, you can end up in this. And you know, this happened to the family in the story. They were at UCLA before they arrived at Stanford. By this point, the mother, highly educated, wealthy family, very, very smart parents were doing all this research themselves. So she'd heard about PANS and PANDAS, said to one of the docs at UCLA, could it be like, we've tried everything, could it be this? And the doctor basically kind of like laughed in her face and was like, I went to Harvard and what you're talking about, it's not even real. Wow. And so you end up in this situation where you have doctors at places like Stanford, so many other very credible institutions around the country who are like, this disease exists we can cure your child. And you have equally well-trained and, you know, doctors with so many letters after their name being like, those doctors are quacks. So where the heck does that leave patients? Mm. 
And what I talk about in the story is kind of like back to the origins of medicine, that any given diagnosis was often contested to begin mm. with. So my fast, the thing that I am fascinated with, what's the tipping point in medicine where you have enough consensus to say, for example, yes, long COVID is real mm. versus I don't, I don't, I'm not sure it's just fatigue or whatever, right? And while we are fighting it out, what happens to the poor patients who are just trying to live their lives, just trying to reclaim their health, just trying to understand what the heck is going on? Mm -hmm. I love this quote from, I think, in that article, it says, doctors are used to knowing the answer. Doctors are the people who all got good grades in school and they wanted to be the ones to figure everything out. So if you go in there saying, I'm telling you my child has this, then the doctor will feel like, who's a doctor here? And I feel that way sometimes too. When, <laughs> when my patients come to me and say, I think I have this. I'm like, yeah, who's a doctor here? I went through all this training. You came to me for help. But yeah, sometimes they're right. <laughs> and I thought that was a very funny quote from the article. And that quote, I believe, came from one of the doctors at Stanford. Yes, that's right. trying yeah. to help the parents who have to then end up going to seek medical care elsewhere. She makes a binder for them that's like, you're going to have to try and convince the doctor that pans and pandas are real. Let me give you some advice on how to speak with my kind because we're a special bunch, <laughs> basically, right? And I mean, fair, I mean, all humans, we all have our egos, right? But like you said, yeah, you can end up in a situation where the patient comes in and they are unfolding a massive piece of paper from the newspaper that they've cut out about some new diabetes cure. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's not real. And so yeah, in the instance of this pans and pandas controversy, and again, I hadn't heard about this until someone, a pediatrician at Stanford said to me, did you know that we have a clinic for this and that it's highly controversial that the clinic is funded? And I was like, wait, what? This happens at Stanford? Like, I'm so fascinated by this. And then, of course, I met doctors from around the country who were like, well, I'm very highly trained and I work at a prestigious Ivy League organization. I think these diseases are real. However, my peers in my field, whether it's pediatrics or whether it's rheumatology, are bullying me, are suing me, are ostracizing me at annual meetings because they think I've lost my mind. So it's like science is always evolving. Yeah. At what point do you say, I have enough evidence? And in the case of pans and pandas, if people think you're a quack, they may not fund your research. Then how mm. do you amass the evidence you need to prove that you, you know, it's like a whole, a whole cycle at the same time. You want to protect patients from doctors who might take advantage of yeah. them. I'm not saying that's the case with the pans and pandas doctors, but you always have that concern about vulnerable patient populations. That was a fascinating story. Thanks for writing that. And I can't wait for your book to come out. I'm so looking forward to reading it. I have a thousand more questions, but I know you have an extremely busy schedule. So I want to be sensitive to your time, but really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. As you can tell, I love talking about all things to do with kind of why we believe what we believe and how we amass evidence and how we can disagree with each other without hurting each other. So that's why I wrote What the Fact, my first time writing a book that's aimed primarily at teenagers, but I hope everyone reads it. And I would say in general, I'm on a mission to get adults to read young adults, uh, yeah. fiction and nonfiction, pick up picture books. Kids' picture books are amazing. Like we should be reading across the ages. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Seema Yasmin is active on social media. I love her accounts. 
You can find her both on Instagram and TikTok at D-R-S-E-E-M-A-Y-A-S-M-I-N. She's also on Twitter at D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-S-M-I-N. And reach out to me on social media. On Twitter, I can be found at B-O-N-K-U. On Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab is produced by Rob Grisi. Editing by Fernando Quieres. Theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.